0: The title of the sermon is The Government is a Minister of God. So we're going to try to unpack through the scriptures how does the government actually serve God? And uh, we're going to see in the text that are Romans 13 that, that they actually say that the government is a minister of God. And I know many of us watched the debate this past Tuesday and uh, it definitely kicked off the election season in an interesting manner Lord, and uh, manner and manner uh, You know, my family and I were able to watch some of it and not very respectful what came to my mind. And uh, so I just thought this would be a good time to help our church family look to the scriptures to guide us in how we shall approach the election, how we are to stir the vote and our votes that we've been given. And since this is our first time around as a church family going through election, I thought, all right, let's take a week break from 1 Corinthians and then dive into Romans here. All right We'll be at Romans 13 and Romans chapter one later on. But the same theme still applies. We've been talking about unity in First Corinthians, so we're still going to be talking about unity because politics could be the most divisive topic. And in some ways, I'm entering into, into the hornet's nest being able to preach on some of these things. But we submit to God's word, and we all love Christ. And we need to hear what the Lord has to say about the government and how to vote through the scriptures. So in, in other words, in order to vote well, I think definitely we need to know what the role of the government is. And I have had the privilege of being able to do some premarital counseling sessions. And uh, last Saturday I was able to marry off a, a couple uh, that I have known. And so that was wonderful. And I'm um, in premarital counseling currently with another couple. But one of the things that we talk about is what is the role of the husband and what is the role of the wife as we enter into marriage? It's important to understand roles. And so when I, one of the things I ask the ladies, the sisters, is the role of your husband is to be your pastor and to lead you and to guide you. He will have authority over you. And therefore, can you see yourself submitted to his authority for the rest of your life? Right? So choose wisely, right? And of course they go, of course, of course. But it's important to understand roles. So therefore, in the area of government, we need to know what the role of the government is so that we could steward our vote wisely, right? This is what we need to do. So we'll be at Romans 13, uh, 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans 13, 1 through 5. Just a little bit of background. God is the God of order. He's not the God of chaos. He's not a God of having us to wonder. God has instituted certain institutions in our world. For example, as Pastor Paul talked about, he's instituted family where father, mother oversee the family, where the fathers are the pastors of the home and and are are to care for the spiritual and physical and emotional well-being of the family. God has also instituted the local church where Christ is the head of the church and he has men to lead under Christ and care for the souls of the church. There's order. We know how to function. And and what I tell my children is this. By submitting to mommy and papa, you're really submitting to Christ. And so the third area that God has instituted is the civic arena where God has instituted governments to perform a specific role. So we're going we're gonna to read Romans 13, 1 through 5 together. So if you're able to, able, please rise and let's read Romans 13, 1 through 5 together. I'll be reading out the NASB version. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's word. Verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation, judgment upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? mark. Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, talking about the government, is a minister of God. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. But it, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger or punisher, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to uh, go through your scriptures. Give us ears to hear, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Three main points that we're going to have, I'll just give it to you ahead of time, is we're going to cover the role of man. We're going to cover that fairly quickly. And then point number two, the role of the government. We'll cover that fairly quickly and we'll spend most of our time on the role of the vote. On the role of the vote. Okay, so let's get to the, let's get to right away. Point number one: the role of man, according to Romans thirteen, is to submit. Write that down in your notes. The role of man is to submit. Verse one says, "Every person or soul is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Every man, woman, and child is to submit to the governing authorities." Now. Being a submission is viewed as a negative thing in our culture, right? And it's like our culture teaches us to be our own person, be your own man, you know, do what you feel like is best, be true to yourself. These sort of concepts are very prevalent in our culture today. But the Bible sees submission in a very positive light, in a very positive light. So God charges every person to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? Why? Because verse 1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God is the one that establishes authorities. So, children, as you obey your parents, God is the one that gave you your parents. Basically, by obeying God, you obey, I mean, by obeying your parents, you obey God. So, therefore, in our civic duties, as we obey our leaders, we obey God, right? Daniel 2.21 says he, meaning God, removes kings and establishes kings. God is the one that sets up kingdoms and removes kingdoms. From every type of government, I mean, whether it's a monarchy, you got a king or queen, you got a Caesar, you got an emperor, you got a pharaoh, these are all been established by God. Even if we have a communist government, a socialist government, a democratic government, all these are set up by God. Obviously, some have been good and some have been bad. But nonetheless, the Bible says all of these have been set up by God. Therefore, since we submit to God, we need to submit to our ruling authorities. God says in verse 2 of Romans that those who don't submit will have a, a, incur a condemnation. There will be judgment upon those who do not submit. Obviously, for non-believers, there will be a judgment in a, on a holistic, divine level. But for Christians, we will have to answer to the Lord how we submit it to our authorities, our government authorities, right? And this is important. Now, there is a limit, of course, as we talked about, right? There is a limit. Where Here's an example of a limit. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Hebrew boys were captured and brought into Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar the one that God placed to be in control, ordained that every people, every man, woman, child in the kingdom, when they hear uh, 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 music, they're to worship this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar established. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, knowing the Old Testament, said we we're only to worship the God of the Bible, did not do it. And they did it. They, dis- they respectfully disobeyed the king. Not in, the, not in an antagonistic matter. They said, we're not going to do this. And they're willing to suffer the consequences. And the king threw them into the fiery furnace. For those of us who know the story, God shows up and protects them from this fiery furnace. So obviously there's a limit to our submission to the government. We are ultimately submitted to our authority, Christ himself. We know this, as Pastor Paul talked about. Let's move on to point number two. The role of the government, I broke it up into two points, is to promote good and to restrain evil. That's why the government exists, to promote good and to restrain evil. Let's look at verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, for good moral behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. The government is to praise those who do good, promote good, promote morality, promote safeness in our culture, right? This is important. Verse 4 says, for it is a minister or servant. This is the same word that's used for deacon, right? So there's people who serve in the church that are called deacons, but the government, he says, is a minister or deacon or servant of God. To you for good. It's and and the government's meant to do good. Why? Because this is, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister, a servant, a deacon of God, an avenger or punisher who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. The government's role in restraining evil is to punish evildoers. In no unclear terms, it bears a sword. That's the police, the military, the might of the government is to punish or avenge the evildoer, right? This is why we don't go out on the street and carry out justice on our own. We understand this. This is why when we have our wives or children walk on the street, we expect there to be a certain level of safety. And if there's something that, some evil that happens, these evildoers have to think twice because the government's going to come down on them. This is a good thing. All right, this is a good thing. It maintains order. So this is what the role of the government is, to promote good, to restrain evil. All right, this is a good thing. This is a good thing for Christians and non-Christians, All right, to maintain order, to maintain order. That is the role of the government, to promote good, to restrain evil. Now, let's jump to point number three now. I told you I'd go to point one and two fairly quickly. Let's go to point number three. All right, point number three, the role of the vote, the role of the vote, the role of the vote. Here's some principles that have come to mind as I was studying this topic on how can we inform our church family and how to steward our vote. Principle number one, write this down, we are not home yet. We are not home yet. John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, right? Jesus is our king. Jesus is our authority, and we're part of his kingdom. He goes, my kingdom is not of this world. So as we're approaching the government and and how we vote, this is not a forever thing. In the book of Revelation, it's it's very clear. God establishes his kingdom forever, and there are no countries and nations anymore, right? Right? So principle number one, we are not home yet. Principle number two, write this down. Voting is a stewardship. What is stewardship? Being a steward is basically I'm a manager over something that I do not own. That means we've been given something to take care of. Voting is not guaranteed in the Bible. Not all Christians have a vote. It basically depends on where you live and what nation you're under. We happen to, by God's grace in America, have privileges unique to many people on the the planet. We do get a vote, and this is important. It's just like money. Not all of us have the same amount of money. How little or how much we have is a stewardship. God will judge us on how we spend our money. Did we spend it faithfully? Did we spend it for the cause of the kingdom? Just like time. Some of us have more time. Some of us have less time. Some of us are in retirement stage. We may have more time. How are we stewarding our time? Some of us are in the phase of raising little children. Are we stewarding that time? Well, to raise them up to love Christ, right? It's all stewardship. And someday we're going to answer to the king, our authority, Jesus himself, on how we spent our money, our time, and also our vote we need to vote faithfully we need to vote faithfully voting is a stewardship now let's go to point number three here principle number three all right know the role of the official know the role of the government official All right, let's be clear on that we're voting right now we're talking about the presidential election we're voting for a president of the United States of America. What a massive role that is. Who would want that weight on their shoulders? That's a big role. However, we're not voting for a pastor. Right? Do you remember voting for me? Right? I'm sure you weighed character. As it talks about the scriptures uh, in Timothy uh, chapter 3 and Titus 1, that the role of the elder or pastor, character needs to be there. I'm sure you wait, can he teach and preach the Bible? Because that's the primary function of a pastor. But this is not what you're voting for. You're also not even voting for a husband for your daughters or for your sisters. Right? You're also not voting for a Messiah or a Savior for America. You're voting for a president, a government official, which is a weighty role But just know who you're voting for, what we're voting for. And the president's role is to promote good and to restrain evil. That's his role. That's his role. It's playoff time right now, and some of us care about the L.A. Dodgers. I care about the Dodgers. I don't have cable, so I'm not watching it on television. But on my phone, my ESPN app has this game tracker where it shows balls and strikes. And in the playoffs, I mean, you got the best pitchers and the best batters. These, these players are very important. you even got managers managing the game. But they're not the most important people on the field. It's that man sitting behind the, the batter and the man who's calling balls and strikes. He's the one that matters the most. He's the one that controls the game the most. He's the one able to see, is that a ball? All right, it's a ball. Ball. Or is that a strike? Strike. And so that referee, that umpire, needs to be able to see clearly so he can call balls and strikes. So when you're picking a president, remember his role or her role is to promote good and restrain evil. Are are they able to see clearly to call balls and strikes properly? Are they able to call good good and evil evil, right? This is important for us to figure out. And so as we approach this election season... Are our leaders able to call balls and strikes or what's good call what's good, good, and what's bad, bad? All right, so let's turn to Romans chapter one. This will give us a lot of clarity on on what I'm talking about here. Romans chapter one, as you're turning there to your, on your devices or in your, your Bibles here, we'll start off at verse 18. This talks about how God judges certain civilizations, Certain empires, and it's been happening since the beginning of time, and now we've had the Roman Empire during when Paul was writing the book of Romans, so he he 's addressing some things that are happening in Rome, and also these things are timeless these things also happen today as well so let's read verse eighteen together for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all and unrighteousness of men who suppose the true who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So, nations that have suppressed the truth, God pours out his wrath or his divine judgment on. And why, did it, why does it do that? Because verse 19 and 20 says that the man has no excuse. Through the created order, man could see there is a God and I'm not him. There is no excuse, meaning we could tell there is a creator. And verse 21 goes on to say that men who who have rejected God, they knew God, but they denied Him, they've rejected God, those who rejected God will undergo divine judgment, right? I believe America is a post Christian nation. Our forefathers, founding forefathers, may have been Christians and they may have even implemented, they have implemented Judeo Christian values. right, the Pledge of Allegiance one nation under God, right? Prayer in public ceremonies, swearing with the Bible, swearing your allegiance to do your job at the presidential installment ceremony. They have a Bible traditionally, right? So culturally, we've been a Christian nation, and we've acknowledged God. In God we trust, as the rights in our currency, But our modern culture has denied God, denied God. We've promoted self. We've promoted uh, living for ourselves, living for pleasure. We've promoted uh, wealth. We've We've submitted to other idols. This is what the Bible talks about in Romans 1 right here. And nations who do that undergo judgment. This phrase, God gave them over, shows up three times in Romans chapter 1. God gave them over in in, in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. This is talking about divine judgment. God gave them over. What does this look like when God gives over a nation? I'm going to tell a story here. I was uh, in my old days... uh, Before going to professional football, I was coaching college football. And one of my main jobs is to go recruiting. And as a brand new young coach, they gave the young coach the land that has the most area. Okay, so my recruiting area in California was from Bakersfield all the way up to Oregon east of the 5 Freeway. That was my recruiting area. All right, so the, it has the least amount of population and most amount of legwork because I got to drive to all kinds of places. And, but it brought me to some beautiful remote locations that I'd never been to as a kid. And one of the areas I went up to was the area like, it was an area called Oroville. Oroville, that's, which is north of Sacramento. It's north of Yuba. And it's this area called Oroville. Oroville has this dam and it's called the Oroville Dam. It's the tallest dam in the United States of America. And it has a very important job. It, the dam is there to restrain 1.1 million gallons of water. That's a lot of water. 1.1 million gallons of water. And it's huge. And it sets up the Lake Oroville, which is a great recreational center for the people up there. But in 2017, something, something scary happened for the people up there. In 2017, as we know, in, in California from 2011 to 2017, we went through under, underwent one of the worst droughts in the history of our state. But the Lord broke that drought because in 2017, one of the wettest winters happened in over 100 years, and the water levels ro- rose and the water pressure rose. And in, basically, they had a problem. One of the, the spillways the main spillway, emer- emergent spillways in the dam burst. All the concrete flew out and there's a big hole in the middle. And the water started spraying to the side and started eroding this hillside, which supported the dam. Well, what's the problem there? If the, if the, if the hillside erodes, that dam's going to collapse. And 1.1 million, a tr- 1.1 trillion gallons of water will come down in that Feather River Basin. So they have to evacuate almost 190,000 people from that area, from the Feather River Basin, Butte and Yuba and, and this whole area. It was a scary situation. Well, that's basically what the Lord has been doing for us. For Christians and non-Christians, we Must remember, we live in a fallen world, a sin-infested fallen world. And the Lord was acting as a divine dam, restraining the full negative effects of sin on man, Christian or non-Christian called common grace. God has graced Christians and non-Christians from being able to enjoy certain things in life. We can enjoy good relationships. We can enjoy food. We can enjoy weather. We can enjoy certain standards of morality in our nation in particular. Some things were just a given. We, we understood this. So we enjoyed this. But whenever we, America or any other society, reject God and deny God, God allows some of that water to get through and to fall on our people. Obviously, we haven't experienced the full wrath of God yet, but some of God's divine wrath or God's judgment is falling on societies. And left to our own, man allows, man will follow our sinful bent and will allow immorality to take place. Jesus says they don't come to the light because they hate God. The light, because they love the darkness. Darkness produces darkness. And this is what perhaps has happened in our nation. So my question is, as we go through Romans here, has God abandoned America? It's a heavy question. It's a grim reality, perhaps. Has God abandoned America? There's three stages of divine judgment that's talked about in the scriptures here in Romans. Stage one here, and if you got your notes, write this down. Romans 1 I'm going to read the first God gave them over. Because a nation or a civilization has and denied God, therefore God gave them over. Verse 24, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. First stage is a sexual revolution. Sexual revolution. Where Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is more deceitful and wicked above all else. Desperately sick. Has God allowed our, our nation to just undergo certain levels of depravity in, in sexual areas, arenas? I mean, have we allowed, have, has God allowed this to happen? Something happened in the late 50s and the 60s. Our country, our nation went through a sexual revolution. And don't get me wrong, I understand these sinful activities, activities have been happening from the beginning of since the fall. But somewhere along the line where we started actually affirming and being okay with these sexual deviancies. We live in a pornographic culture where, where pornography is everywhere. We're okay cohabitating with one another. We actually affirm that and say that's a very normal thing in our culture today. We can't watch sporting events or anything on the television without censoring the commercials. Sometimes, as we're watching with our kids, I mean, we our culture affirms and celebrates these things—a sexual revolution. Our media, music, movies, commercials—all these things have normalized sex outside the marriage. A sexual revolution. Has America gone under that? Yes. Given enough time, another stage takes place. Even a more grim stage takes place. Stage number two, a homosexual revolution. Let's read Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. Lesbianism. Verse 27, and in the same way, also the men uh, abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, sodomy, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of the error. We've undergone a homosexual revolution. The LGBTQ plus affirming culture that we live in is obvious. We have National Pride Month. They hijacked the rainbow flag from God's uh, 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 goodness to represent this whole movement. The rainbow has been hijacked. Media affirms this. Social media affirms this. If you were to speak out against this, people would lash out against you because this is not going with the current of the times. Universities are dominated by this type of thing. School for little children. Is, flooding, is flooded with this type of curriculum. Disney, some of us even love Disney, right? Disney has already created their first bisexual lead character in a cartoon for children. Beware. You know, we're about Jesus' kingdom, not the magic kingdom, so beware. Disney. The church. We're confused. Pastors are preaching and saying that they affirm men and men coming together in marriage and women and women coming together in marriage. Even the church that planted us, Evergreen LA, the pastors are speaking this way where they corrupted the interpretation of the word to get to this point. This is where our culture is at. It's sad that we have these things to talk about, but this is true. This is where our nation's at. And eventually... As the Lord allows these things to take place, is a third and final horrific phase. Phase three is a depraved mind. Let's read Romans 1.28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. See that again? God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, depraved, worthless, senseless, cannot think straight. This is that mind who doesn't know what's up and down anymore. No longer can you say what's left and right. No longer can you call balls and strikes properly anymore. Isaiah 520 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Is this not what has happened to our nation? We can't even think straight at times as a people group, our culture we're talking about. I'm going to read the rest of Romans 1, starting from one twenty-nine. Being filled with all unrighteousness, a depraved mind is filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's a laundry list of sins where Paul just machine guns these one after another, after another. This is not an exhaustive list, exhaustive list either, either. And this is what happens here. And although they know the ordinance, verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, the commands of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Not only do they do these evil things, a depraved mind approves and affirms these things. Right? That is judgment. It's one thing to be doing things in the dark. It's another when leadership in our culture promotes these things and say, this is good. Therefore, when we think about voting, we're going back to the vote here now, guys. We need to examine which candidate has a sound mind. It's critical that we're able to do this because the role of the government is to promote good and restrain evil. All right, And government leaders need to be able to discern what is good, what is evil. So let's apply this here, some points of application to consider as we pray and think about who to vote for. Who to vote for. Some things to consider. Point number one thing to consider, who will protect the unborn child? Who will protect the unborn child? The unborn child is the most defenseless person in America. They don't have a choice. They're just supposed to be born and, and, and mature. The sanctity of life. That's why I'm so fired up as a church that we get to support a ministry like Options. We're so grateful for that. Who, who counsel women, mothers who, to have options other than abortion to teach them that there's other ways to get support during a very scary time. Right? Through unplanned pregnancies. Praise God for these ministries. A depraved mind would say, it's okay to murder a baby. It's okay, and it's a good thing. You have the right to do it. A depraved mind will promote these things. Over 61 million people have been murdered in the womb since 1973, Roe versus Wade. There's, that means there's 61 million less Americans that walked the earth. 61 million lives. Depravity. If you're wondering if an unborn child is a, is a person or not, well, Jeremiah 1.5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before Jeremiah was born to serve as a prophet, God says, I knew you. Before you ever knit it in your mother's womb, God chose him to be a prophet in Israel. These are people. Second thing to consider: who promotes justice? This is important. This is important. Who punishes the evildoer? Who protects the good? Think about certain policies: is defunding the police the right thing to do? Do you want to take the sword away from the government? Is this a good thing to do? Do we actually believe that majority of the law, people in law enforcement are corrupt? Or do you believe the vast majority are solid and good and they're trying to do their best and there's, there's some bad apples, right? Is that the answer? Who will appoint Supreme Court justices, judges to sit on, at the Supreme Court level to call balls and strikes? This is critical. The president gets to do this. They get to appoint men and women who judge laws to see if it's good or evil. This is what they do. And from there, it sets precedence for our nation. Third thing to consider. Who restrains the moral erosion of the nation? All right, As water was eroding the hillside of the, in Oroville, who restrains that flow from eroding our morality? The homosexual and the LGBTQ plus agenda is rampant everywhere. Who will be someone that will restrain, help restrain some of this? A depraved mind, pray for them, says, I get to pick my gender. You don't have to go to the university to understand that's not true. That's a depraved mind. It's crazy. It doesn't make sense. A depraved mind says two men could make a husband and wife, a marriage union. There's no way. That doesn't make sense. That's a depraved mind. And the fourth thing that I would add to consider is religious liberties. Although this is not guaranteed in the scriptures, we we've ha- we've enjoyed this for centuries here in the United States of America. This is important. And it's kind of tied into some of these other agendas. Will they ever gag the pulpit and say, "You know what? You cannot say homosexuality is a sin." Will they ever do that? Because it's hate speech. Will they ever come down on the local church because a pastor's not willing to marry two men or two women? That could happen. These things are very important for us to consider. We get to gather together. We gather outside. It was an awesome time that we had. had Probably the most that we ever had come out. More people are coming out. So if you're ready, come on out. Worship together. Right now we're able to live stream this. Our government allows us and protects these liberties for us. These are things that we would want to consider. So in essence, who should we vote for? Men or women who will call good good and be able to recognize evil is evil. Someone is able to call balls and strikes accurately. That's who you need to consider. How can you tell this? Well, just look at their policies, their agendas. All, no one could look into the heart of a man or a woman, but based on what they say, what, on their positions, you could tell what they believe. All you could do is go off the information that you've been given. God will judge you only on what you know, okay, in this case. I mean, I believe our nation is heading down a moral decline. Like a train going right down the hill. Well, we might as well add some speed bumps along the way to slow this down if we have an opportunity to affect things. As a church, we need to rise up and really pray and understand this is a serious stewardship that we have before the Lord. And whoever gets elected, whoever it is, we go right back to the scriptures. We submit to them. We cheerfully submit to them. We pray for them. And we trust that God is, in his wisdom has appointed them to be our leader, our national leader, our local leader, what have you. We cheerfully submit to them until they charge us to disobey our Lord, the king who's sitting on the throne. Now you may be saying, Pastor, this is a grim message. It is. It's, it's true. Where is the hope in it? Where is the hope in this? Well, the gospel says there is hope. There is hope. We just sang this song here, and it brings to mind the song that we sang called Authority. I'm going to read where that song was inspired of. I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Where is the hope at, brothers and sisters? Those of us are in Christ Jesus, by believing the message of the gospel Have this hope here. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, you know what that year was? A year in Israel when a great king, a good king died. And Isaiah the prophet is wondering where are we going as a nation? Where's our hope at? Where's the next generation of leaders? Where's Ronald Reagan? Where's Abraham Lincoln? Where are they? Where are these great leaders of our past? seen the debate, you may be wondering that, right? In the year of King Uzziah, Isaiah said, look, where are we going as a nation? Then I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Isaiah saw Christ sitting on his throne in heaven. And all those concerns about who's going to be our president, who's going to be our king, who's going to be the next ruler vanished. it didn't matter. In that year, Isaiah saw Jesus Christ sitting on the throne in heaven in all his glory. And it says that he, he was lofty and exalted with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, these mighty angels, stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to another, said, holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Intense worship was taking place in heaven. Isaiah saw this picture. He forgot about Uzziah. We need to see this picture. We need to forget about all these other things. How intense was the worship? Verse four, and the foundation of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. The worship was so intense that the temple was shaking. This is the intensity of worship the Lord desires. This is the level of intensity the Lord, the, of worship the Lord deserves. Then I said, here comes the narrative turns right back to Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. We're all sinners. Some of us may have gone under abortion. Some of us may have promoted these things. Some of us have been led astray. All right, that's me included. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. But look what happens. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Hosts. When we see the King someday, we will understand where we, where who we are, and where we are in relation to Him. And this is the gospel. Comes up, verse six. Then one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. With tongs, he touched my mouth with it and said, "Behold, this has touched your lips." And your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Boom. Has your sins been forgiven, friends? Have you given your life to the one sitting on the throne in heaven right now? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? The king of kings, the Lord of lords. The one who will be judging the living and the dead, the Bible says. Have you given your life to Christ? If you haven't, you need to. You need to repent and say, I'm a man or woman of unclean lips, and I need forgiveness because you're going to judge me someday. You need to say, Lord, I know that you died for my sins, and I believe, Jesus, that you're God, and you died for me, and you live, and you're coming back, and I want to give my life to you. Not just believe in salvation, but believe and submit to the lordship of Christ. Come under his rule. Sit at his throne. So today we get to take communion. This is a phenomenal opportunity for us. The Bible says that there's one body. One king. One kingdom. And the Bible says as we take communion, we're to take communion in a worthy manner. To remember the sacrifice that God has paid for us. To remember. And communion is for Christians only. For those of us who submitted to the one sitting on the throne in heaven right now, Jesus Christ himself as our Lord and Savior. If you are part of this group, the body of Christ, let's get ready to take communion. Let's get ready to take communion in a worthy manner. And how one takes communion in a worthy manner is this. If there's any sin that you know of, you need to repent. Repent before coming to the Lord's table. If you do not repent, I ask you, please refrain because we do not want condemnation to come upon you. If there's any division amongst the body and you have a a problem with any brothers or sisters in the body, you need to pray about this and repent of this before you come to the Lord's table. If you're unwilling to forgive, if you're unwilling to humble yourself, please don't take communion. We don't want you to take communion in an unworthy manner. So we're going to pray right now, and after this, Marcus is going to lead us in song. I want you to use that time to prepare your hearts to take communion in a worthy manner and to know that our identity is with with the one who sits on the throne in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word makes darkened eyes to see. Your word is a lamp to my feet, you say, Lord. Lord, you say, How can a young man keep his way pure by treasuring your word into our hearts? Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. I pray, Lord, for Evergreen SUV, that we will be men and women and children of the word who hunger after your word as starving people, who thirst after your word as a deer panties for water. Thank you, Jesus, that you're on the throne right now. And thank you, Jesus, that you have no term limits. Thank you, Jesus, that you do not have a shady past. Thank you, Jesus, that you know all things. Thank you, Jesus. You are the author of good. So, Lord, I pray, Father, that we would take communion in a worthy manner. Will your spirit bring things to mind that is unpure in our lives so that we could repent of these things and to trust even more in the gospel that you have given to us. So, Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach on voting. I pray we know this is about you, not about us. And I pray by your grace, we will steward this vote faithfully, Lord. And you will be pleased and say, well done, good and faithful slave. Thank you, Lord. Please prepare us for communion. In Jesus' name, amen.